And let's turn to James chapter 1. James is going to teach us about the source of our blessings. God is always the source of blessing, never to be blamed. The blessed man doesn't blame God for his sin. And I wanted to tie this in to the sanctity of life topic. Let me read James, though, chapter 1, 12 to 18. We'll back up to verse 12. We're going to do this every week. We have to back up a little to make the connection and then move forward. Otherwise, like we said, James turns into these unrelated chunks of wisdom, and it's not intended to be written that way. James is making an argument, and he connects each portion uh, together. James 1, 12 to 18. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. First, let me define sanctity, sanctity of life, and we often say the sanctity of marriage. Those are the two most common phrases we, we hear. Sanctity just means that which is sanctified. It's an adjective, or, or even a noun. Um, something that's holy, set apart by God. The sanctity of life speaks to the fact that God created life. He defines life. He determines it. He determines its purpose, its boundaries, and what our lives are to be used for. Same with marriage. He defined marriage, instituted marriage, defines it, determines its purpose, And its boundaries. It's the sanctity of marriage. Man, do not touch this. Do not attempt to change this. Do not attempt to redefine what is holy, what is sacred. As we live in an increasingly secularized culture in the West, and here in America, we see that the elites or the left or the unbelievers, and I don't put that all together as if every single person falls into all those categories, but certainly there's an understanding that there is a group who do not want God to be part of the public sphere. We do not want God defining life. We do not want God defining marriage. We want to set our own definition. And so you have some choices you can make. You can either say there is no God, therefore we will have to make up our own truth. 
Or you could say there is a God, but His Word has been tampered with through the ages. And so getting back to what the original words of God are is difficult. And so a lot of liberal scholars who claim to be Christian teach in seminaries. They go through the process of what they call higher criticism and they reconstruct God's words of the Bible. They say, well, clearly someone came along later and changed the words because they had this agenda. And so now you don't really have God's word left and you leave it up to the liberal theologian to dig through the lies and the distortion and get back to the original truth. So that's another game man plays. A third way we might, as fallen human beings, determine our own truth without getting rid of God is to say, God told me directly. God told me directly without examining those thoughts or dreams, voices, impressions with the Word of God. So this is a popular game that has been played since the beginning of time. Genesis 3, did God really say? Did God really say? And if you're able in your heart of hearts to say, Either no, God did not really say, or God, what God? Then you're now free to determine reality according to your own whims, to your own purposes, your own agenda. That is the mess that we find ourselves in in our culture. Something that seemed so foreign so foreign just a few decades ago, maybe 70 years before Roe v. Wade, why would anybody want to eliminate their own baby? That doesn't make any sense. That's God's life in there. Sure, maybe in my perspective it came at an inconvenient time, but I'll trust God for His timing and I will see all life as a blessing. And here we are today. And again, this isn't just, like they said in the video, a political issue. This is a God issue. This goes back to the beginning, back to the heart and root of all of our problems. Did God really say? God is the author of life. He determines what the essence of life is, what the worth of each life is, and what the boundaries of life are. God brought us into the world and he has each of our days numbered already. Scriptures tell us, teach me to number my days as you have, O Lord. Each day is precious. The blessed man, according to James, chooses to embrace God's wisdom regarding reality, while the natural man chooses to embrace worldly wisdom and deceives himself into contradicting God's revealed truth. It's, it's that simple. It's what the whole book is about. He's addressing believers. He's addressing the church. He's addressing my brethren. And yet within the church, within that assembly, he realizes there's two kinds of people that call themselves believers. Those that 
profess to be believers but have deceived themselves and they're really not believers. And so he's giving us tests here to see whether or not we're really in the faith. But he's also addressing those that are professing believers and true believers but are tempted to stall in their sanctification. What moves our sanctification along? What matures us in Christ? What will bring us to the place where he says, where endurance has its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? It is this embracing of God's truth, trusting in it, and living accordingly. So all throughout the letter, it's, you say you're a believer, this is what it means, and this is what it will look like. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. The blessed man perseveres under trial because he knows that he, if he endures the trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's the ultimate goal. Heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. The goal isn't to avoid trials. We said that last week. For those pursuing happiness, happiness can only come in the absence of trials. And yet James says, the godly man, the one who trusts in God, and God's wisdom says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's completely different than what the world is teaching, right? It's pretty black and white here. Two options. Blame God or bless God. Now the ironic and would be funny if not so sad thing about the natural man and the unbeliever is he desperately wants this world without God and then gets up incredibly upset at the results of living in a world where people aren't listening to God. See, I don't want there to be a God so that I can make up my own agenda and then when everybody starts making up their own agenda, curse, curse it. Curse who? You said there's no God. Who are you upset with? We see this in portrayed in the movie God is Not Dead, right? The atheist professor and then the savvy freshman. I know no freshman who can talk this way, but it's the movies, right? Traps his professor into admitting that he really does believe in a God, but he's just mad that God had ruined him his life. The double-minded man, right, that James talks about? The double-minded man. There is no God when it's convenient for me, but when everything goes wrong, I need somebody to blame. This is what James is talking about, why we're not to blame God for our trials. Of course there will be trials in life. The trials doesn't mean that there's no God. Right? It's the problem of evil argument. If there really is an all-powerful, all-loving God, then why is there evil? Why is there suffering? So he's preaching to us as believers not to be tempted to blame God in the midst of our trials for our unhappiness, for our frustration. Instead of blaming, embracing, and trusting God, Remember the uh, Christopher Hitchens debates with, with Douglas Wilson. 
They filmed a lot of these, and you can, you can buy the set. They actually put it together in a really nice package, and they both agreed to do these. They're mutual friends. Sadly, I don't think Christopher Hitchens repented on his deathbed at all. In fact, he wrote that if my mind goes and I make a profession of faith, that's not me, that's, that's the craziness. And at one point at the end of their debate, Christopher Hitchin finally tips his hand and shakes his fist at God, and he said, well, if there really is a God, then why all this evil? And he goes on this tirade, and Douglas Wilson's only answer to him is, hey, well, stuff happens. Right? In your worldview, and he doesn't say stuff, he uses the other word, which you would say, ooh, a Christian using that word in a debate, but he was answering a fool according to his folly. Isn't that your worldview? If there's no God and we're just here as accidents of a cosmic explosion through chance became human beings, so there's no God to obey, no God to listen to, then why are you so angry? Who are you blaming for injustice? Why is there any injustice? If there's no God, then there's no absolutes. The beautiful answer. Yeah, stuff happens. According to your worldview. The unbeliever can't live according to his worldview. He wants life to have value, but he has no reason why life should have value. He'll disagree with us on matters like abortion and euthanasia. But, hey, when, when a life can't uh, when it's inconvenient to keep that life around, when that life can't contribute to society, or when that life can't pursue happiness, then it's not a life. Until he falls into one of those categories, and somebody's ready to snuff out his life, then, then I want God. This phenomenon hit close to home in my family, my sweet little Lutheran church that I grew up in, lost its way, the word of God not being proclaimed and preached and exposited in the pulpit, and eventually a female pastor was called to the pulpit, and um, from a prestigious family lineage, her father was the bishop of the synod of the ELCA Lutheran Church of which my parents were members. And uh, she eventually split the church and took all the younger believers with her and over a period of years deconstructed their faith until there was nothing left. God was just a construct, just a man-made idea that helps people cope in life. But really, there's more freedom in embracing that he's not really there. Of course, once she convinced everybody of that, guess what happened to the church? <laughs> it dissolved. And so now she's teaching religion classes at the University of the Pacific, which is a pretty prestigious, very expensive private school in Stockton. So parents are paying big money to have their kids go and have their faith deconstructed. But she wrote a book recently, my dad told me about it, I looked up on Amazon, and there it is, in bright pink, 
with the headline or the title, Religion Made Me Fat, and a bunch of other things she blames God for, except there is no God in her worldview. The double-minded woman in that case. There is no God. I'm free, but I still want to blame him for all the trouble in my life. Reminds me of Job's wife. Curse God to his face and just die. And he said, no, I will bless him in the good and in the bad. Even believers, though, fall into this trap. And that's where we're going today. We need to understand this just isn't just the unbeliever. We're gathered together today as believers, and James is preaching to us as believers who will be tempted because of our residual sin nature to blame God for our sin. He said, well, I would never do that. And you have to understand that the temptation comes in the midst of severe trials. Oh, when we're in small trials, we catch ourselves from being mad at God. Oh, wait, not supposed to. God is good. He's good. Okay. But what about the, the deep, severe trials? Back in the late 80s or early 90s, Dr. Dobson came out with a book, and I like Dr. Dobson. I like his ministry. He's been a blessing to our family uh, when, when we were new believers. Easy to, easy to understand his books. You know, I, could, I can follow this. I can grab hold of this. But he taught that sometimes it may be appropriate if somebody's really struggling because they were born into maybe a family where there's alcoholism and they were abused and, and they just had this horrible life that if they're angry with God, go ahead and blame God for your horrible life and forgive Him for making that mistake. And he was clear to say, God does not need to be forgiven. God does not sin. But if it helps you get over the hump, then later you can go back when they're more teachable and say, you know what, you really didn't need to forgive God. In fact, you need Him to forgive you. He's just thinking that the last thing somebody wants to hear when they've lived a very hard life is, you're a sinner. So I follow his logic, but I don't think, and James makes it clear, in no uncertain terms, let no one say when he is tempted, command, an imperative, let no one say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Never a good idea to lead anyone to believe that they need to forgive God. Amen? Amen. That's not helping anyone, even if the heart was there to help. It's never helping anyone to teach them falsehoods about God's character. Where does this blame game come from? Well, we like to blame our parents, don't we? (laughs) That's a popular pastime. Come on, you've all done it. Blame your parents. And then you became parents and hopefully you humbled up as your children started blaming you for the way they turned out. If we're going to blame our parents, we need to go all the way back to our first parents, to Adam and Eve. 
I was laughing yesterday at, during the uh, lunch after the memorial service. There's a picture of, um, of Dennis at his wedding, and he looked just like Wesley. Or I should say Wesley looked just like him. And I was talking to Debbie, and she said that Laura said, well, at least I know what I have to look forward to. <laughs> right? Those genetics are strong. And uh, Nathan's told me stories about going back to visit his birth dad in Australia and being like, whoa, there's where I get my posture, my facial expressions, my tone of voice. And so we understand there's a nature-nurture kind of thing going on genetically. But we want to go back further than our biological parents all the way to our spiritual parents, who are also ultimately biological parents. Adam and Eve, if you want to understand why this inclination to blame God. After they sinned, and God made it so clear to them, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die. Trust God to reveal to you truth and wisdom, and all will go well with you. If you choose the path of determining wisdom on your own terms, i.e. eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will die. Separation will come. And so after they sinned, it says in Genesis 3.9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? In other words, where are you getting your information from? Who's your God? You're supposed to come to me to ask you to interpret your reality. Somebody's been trying to interpret their own, their own reality, Right? God already knows the answers to these questions, by the way. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, yes, I did. No, that's what he should have said. He said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. There's the blame game. Blame the woman, which ultimately is blaming God. And that's the way we are. On your wedding day, this beautiful bride coming down the aisle, and your heart is overfilled with blessings to God. Thank you, God. Wow, what a gift. And just a few short years later, what a gift. Thank you, God. And you're like, what, what changed? What changed? Well, she did. I got a bigger laugh for a service. Probably because it was spontaneous. No, 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 she didn't change. I changed. My perspective changed. It's my fault. I'm to blame For my bad attitude, I'm to blame for my sin. Not God, not my wife, not my brothers and sisters, not my parents. My sin is my fault. Your sin is your fault. 
Then he asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent, a created being, ultimately going back to God. Maybe she was a little smarter than her husband and, and didn't connect the dots back, back to God. Isn't that interesting? What, what at one time we blessed God for, we will turn and curse him for. James is going to say that later in the book of James. How can the same fountain bring forth good water and bitter water? How can you bless someone made in God's image and then turn around and curse them? If you're truly a Christian and have a Christian worldview and trust in God's revelation, this ought not to be. The connection between James 12, uh, 1.12 and one thirteen is the word trial, which the same word in the Greek in verse 13 is translated temptation. It's the same root word in the Greek, and it's very difficult for translators to tell when should we say trial, when should we say temptation. Context determines. So James is saying, here's the blessed man. He perseveres under trial, and then let no one say when he's tempted. Switching to the word tempted. So let me help you understand how this works. The trial is the outward. It's the situation you find yourself in. It's neutral. You could respond to the trial positively or negatively. The trial is just the trial. Oh, and they're, they're difficult. Yes, we have lots of adjectives to describe the trials, but the trials in and of themselves don't determine the sin that you are tempted to commit. Either you respond to the trial and pass the test, and you're blessed with endurance, or you respond to the trial as a temptation, and you respond sinfully. At some point, the trial becomes a temptation because of your own attitude. An outward trial or test only becomes an inward temptation when our sin nature takes the bait, so to speak. God doesn't want the the trial to be a temptation, but He knows that you will be tempted because of your fallen nature. But the only way that He's going to grow us is to put us in those situations where a trial could become a temptation. If there was another way, he would do it that way. As Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But, if if this is the path... Rabbis taught that man had an evil inclination inside him called the Yetzer Hra. And we would agree, right? There's an evil inclination inside of us. Paul would affirm that in Romans 7, right? There's something working inside of me that tempts me to do the very thing I don't want to do and inhibits me from doing the thing I do want to do. 
But some rabbis erroneously taught that God put that inside of man, kind of like he put the good angel and the little bad angel on each shoulder. And therefore they taught that God's to share in some of the blame for our sin. Boy, if you hadn't put that evil inclination in me in the first place, I wouldn't have these problems. Now, we don't affirm that. We don't in Sunday school when we're raising our hand, but when we're living life, sometimes we say, we pray, God, change me so that I don't do this sin anymore. And when we don't change, we blame God. I've prayed and I prayed and I prayed and He just won't change me in this area. There's something inside of me that I cannot seem to overcome. Well, you can't overcome it in your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and an obedient will towards God, you do the very thing your evil inclination is telling you not to do and trusting God that even if I don't feel like it, obeying God always is the best bet. Brings glory to God and it's going to be the best possible outcome for me. Most often that evil inclination gets all wrapped up in our emotions. I don't feel like doing this. I really feel like doing this. I mean, we all wish we could just be in our state of glorification where everything we feel like doing is the right thing to do. And everything we don't feel like doing are the things we're supposed to avoid. James forbids us to blame God, though, in, in any way. Now, some important questions. If you start thinking, as you've been trained to do in this church, biblically, what other passages do I know about temptation? Well, wait, didn't Jesus teach us to pray, God, lead us not into temptation? How can James say that God tempts no one and then Jesus taught us to pray that He doesn't tempt us? Beloved, there is a big difference between being led into temptation and tempting. They're not the same at all. God may lead us into a trial that He knows will be tempting for us, but God's not the source of the tempting. He's not the source at all. I was trying to figure out how to articulate this well, and Charles Spurgeon helped me out. He has just a way of speaking that is an amazing gift from God. Where he uses an archaic word, I'll try to paraphrase a little, but uh, the font is small and it's three slides. So let me just read to you, and you just soak up Spurgeon's wisdom here. On the very same question on this text, God lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our God and Father may, for wise ends, which shall ultimately serve His own glory and our profit, lead us into positions where Satan, the world, and the flesh may tempt us. And so the prayer is to be understood in that sense of a humble self-distrust. I don't trust myself in trials. I have failed way too many times to know that I don't always 
stand against temptation. So the prayer is a, God, I really don't want to have to do it this way because I don't trust myself. But if this is the way you've ordained for me to grow closer to you, then protect me. But I'd really rather not lead me into situations where I would be tempted. There is courage here for the suppliant, that's the person praying, calmly looks the temptation in the face and dreads only the evil which it may work in him. So you end up dreading only the potential evil it may work in you and learn not to dread the circumstances of the trial. That takes maturity. That doesn't just happen instantaneously. And that only is going to happen through experience, through going through trials. But there is also a holy fear, a sacred self-suspicion, a dread of contact with sin in any degree. The sentiment is not inconsistent with the all-joy that we read about in James. When the many different temptations do come our way, it is akin to the Savior... Jesus saying in the garden, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Which didn't, for even a moment, prevent Jesus from drinking the cup. Even to its dregs, even to the the bottom, the most bitter part of the cup. It's okay in your trials to be authentic with God and cry out to Him like the psalmist. How long, O Lord? Where are you? I'm hurting. I don't like this. It's pushing me to the breaking point. I don't think I can endure any more pain. Have mercy on me, God. It's okay to cry out in that way. James isn't saying... Count it all joy, like some happy, clappy Pollyanna. Let's find the silver lining in every cloud. It's deeper than that. And it starts with being authentic with God. I always tell people in the counseling room, tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you're feeling. What are you really desiring? What are you really upset about? And they want to give me the biblical answer, so I'll give them the gold star. They know what they're supposed to say. And I'm like, that's not going to help us. You need to tell me what, you, what it is that you really want. You say you're angry all the time. The Bible says we get angry when we don't get the things we want. What do you want? Well, I don't want to tell you. I'll look petty and shallow. Okay. Be petty and shallow. So we have something to repent from. And sometimes the things we want are really good things, but God has ordained in His wisdom not to give us those things. But never to the point that we blame God for our sin or accuse Him of any evil or malintent or that He's abandoned us. He's... Spurgeon says, let me observe that God in no sense so leads men into temptation as to have any share in the blame of their sin if they fall into it. Exclamation point. I wonder what it sounded like for Spurgeon to shout. No microphone. Huge auditorium. 
God cannot possibly, by any act of his, become partner with man in his crime, as good old Trapp, that's a commentator of his age, well observes, God tempts men for probation, but never for perdition. Probation, trial, test, for our own benefit, just like a teacher gives a test. For our own benefit, it's not to be evil. Although I've had teachers who I think (laughs) enjoyed watching us suffer. But a test is supposed to be designed to see where your students still, still need to grow, where more teaching needs to take place. Not for perdition. Perdition would... That would be accusing God of putting us in a test He knew we were going to fail and then go, you miserable wretch. That's not what He intends the trial for or the temptation. That's what Satan intends the temptation for. So He can be our accuser. So He can say, you have no right to God's love. Amen. You're right, I have no right to it, but He loves me anyways. You have no place in the kingdom of heaven. On my own, no. In Christ, yes. And if God has to put us, because of our pride, in such a situation that we will fail to crush our pride, good for God. He has our good in mind. The devil tempts men that he may ruin them. God tries men and puts them where Satan may try them. But he leads them into temptation for probation that the chaff may be sifted from the wheat, that the dross may be separated from the fine gold. By these trials, hypocrites fall. Takes a good trial Snuff out a hypocrite. There's one. Remember Peter? Oh, I won't deny you. First chance, first test, he fails it three times. And it was a little slave girl putting him to the test. Wasn't that good for Peter? Sure, he's thankful God put him through that painful, humbling ordeal. Next time, though, renounce the faith or you're going to the cross, you and your whole family. Peter stood. He stood firm. And he said, you know what? I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. Say he passed the test that time and has received the crown of life. I love this because we live in Tehachapi where it's windy. By these trials, hypocrites fall, being discovered in the hour of temptation, just as the rough March wind, you can put in any month there, (laughs) sweeps through the forest and finding out the rotten branches, snaps them from the tree, The fault being not in the wind, but in the decayed branch. Don't blame the wind. Blame the decayed branch. (laughs) My dad visiting a few weeks ago parked his Cadillac under one of our oak trees. 
And I couldn't sleep all night because I wanted to go downstairs and move. Move I just knew a branch. It was windy. Wow, what a great picture for us. God brings the wind. My wife reminded me of a, a, a great picture too when we had our first home in Elk Grove, which is near Sacramento, which they call the City of Trees. They wanted us to plant a bunch of trees. So they, they say, come to this seminar and we'll give you free trees, as many as you want. And we went, and the trees were like this. <laughs> and the ground was hard as a rock. And they said, when you plant the tree, and you put the stakes on either side, you need to loosely put the ties on, because the tree needs to bend a little. God's so designed the tree that a chemical is sent to the roots and tells them to to grow deeper and expand. And if you stake the tree in too tightly, it won't expand its roots out. And then when the tree is full grown and you take the stake away, it gets uprooted after a storm. Wow, what a great picture. God intends our trials to expand that root system and make us stronger. So thank God for the trials. Temptations overcome our inestimable blessings. Read that again. Temptations that we overcome are inestimable blessings. You can't put a price on it. Because they make us lie the more humbly at His feet, so they produce humility. They bind us more firmly to our Lord. They bring us closer to God. And they train us to help others. The trials you find yourself in, that's what it's producing in God's economy. However, yet, while the benefit which God brings out of our being led into temptation is very great, still, temptation in itself is a thing so dangerous, trials and distress in themselves are so perilous, that it is right for the Christian to pray, lead us not into temptation. Even though I know it will bring out all this good, I am so distrustful of my own strength, that I would rather you not lead me into such a situation, but deliver me from the evil one who will tempt me and try to deceive me, including the evil in my own flesh. And then he quotes Martin Luther, "Uh, Temptation is the best school into which the Christian can enter. (laughs) Five kids in here who hate school. Already, so that that line's not uh, resonating with you at all. But for those of us who live a little bit more life and seen the power of education and wisdom in our life and the school of hard knocks, this resonates with us. Temptation is the best school into which the Christian can enter. Yet in itself, apart from the grace of God, it is so doubly hazardous that this prayer should be offered every day. Lead us not into temptation, but if we must enter into it, Lord, deliver us from evil. It's a lot of teaching, but a very important concept. We are at our weakest to affirm sound theology when we are undergoing trials. We need to spend time on this concept. It's easy to give the right answers when everything's going well. 
And if we're going to be salt and light this, this community, I guarantee that the times you will have to speak truth to unbelievers is when their life is falling down around them. When you'll be tempted to say, hey, you wanted life with no God? You got it. That is not how God wants us to respond. Have pity and compassion. Only by God's grace am I not suffering the way you are. And at times, because I still have fallenness in me, I too create a little environment of godlessness and suffer because of it. So you need to be ready to have an explanation for those who are suffering under trials, either those that they didn't bring on themselves or ones that they did bring on themselves. Another question then people have with this passage is, if God cannot be tempted by evil, what about Jesus? Wasn't He tempted? In fact, didn't the Holy Spirit lead Him into the, to the wilderness to be tempted? Well, look at the passage, Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Not by God. By the devil. And since Jesus, being fully human, needed to live the same lives we did, experiencing the same things we did, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet, big difference, without sin, never gave in to sin. I'm thankful He's my high priest. How about you? A perfect one who understands the trials I'm going through. Suffered worse than any of us ever will have to suffer as believers. Had to suffer separation from God the Father and the wrath of God being placed on Him while He held the sins of the world. Talk about blame. God blamed Jesus for our sins on our behalf. He took the wrath we deserve so we could have the blessing He deserves. How do trials become temptations then? So this is, we need to know how to stop temptation turning into sin. We can't do this in the natural man, but as redeemed people in Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit enlightening our minds to understand God's truth and obeying God's truth. James is telling us that we can stop the process. So we need to understand the process to see where to stop the process. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts, and lust isn't sexual here. Lust is a strong desire. Anyone here have strong desires? If you don't, you're not human. We all have desires. Desires can be neutral. They could be good desires. They could be bad desires. And we can even wrongly desire good things. But we're carried away and enticed by our own lust. This is... Um, it's fishing hunting language I was studying. Like the bait, a snare, a trap. Good fishermen here know, they ask, what are the fish biting on? 
And Satan knows what each of us bites on. We're not tempted with things that don't aren't alluring. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So he changes from one metaphor to this giving birth metaphor, which we all understand. Something, someone, an animal, a person gets together with another one, and they conceive something new. So what's the man and the wife in this picture? Desires get together with the mind. Emotions get together with the mind, a deceived mind, and then give forth to sin, give birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I have this alliterated pathway here I got from John MacArthur, the king of alliteration. Desires lead to deception, lead to design, lead to disobedience, lead to death. The sin isn't necessarily at the point of the desire. But when you begin to contemplate Responding to your emotions sinfully, now you've sinned. And Jesus taught us that the sin even happens before the actual act. If you even look at another woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. So you need to stop yourself between one and two. Steps one and two. When your emotions well up and your desires are activated, you need to use the truth of God to tell you how to respond to those desires. That'll determine your designs, what what you plan to do, and then your actual action. He's not saying shut off your desires, although as we grow in Christ, you'll find that your fleshly desires get replaced with godly desires. That does happen, and that should happen in the life of the believer, but let no one deceive themselves to think that they'll never have ungodly desires this side of heaven. Don't just think of ungodly desires as things like uh, sexual lust or anything else in that kind of fleshly category. You'll still have strong desires to get angry, to get sinfully frustrated, to think ill of others, to think they have ill motives in their heart. So James is teaching us that the way to escape the trial, not letting it become a temptation to sin, is to bring God's wisdom into play and trust in that wisdom. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised when you go through trials. It's there 
ordained by God for your testing. As though some strange thing were happening to you. How could this happen to me? That's what we feel like saying. Everything was going along so smoothly and great. I was having a great week and then boom! What's up with that? I find in my life that the longer I have one of these stretches of everything going my way, I tend to drift from God. How about you? It takes a trial in my life to have me run back to my Savior. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you. So this is the case where somebody is in a trial and they feel like it was too much for them and I just gave in to sin. It was too much. And not only was it too much, but it was so unique. Nobody, nobody has ever had to go through this before. This is one of our favorite passages to go to when somebody first comes in for counseling. They come in for help and they always say, well, you don't understand. So, well, why are you in here then? <laughs> I guess I can't help. If this is so unique, you're the only one who's ever gone through this, then no one can help you. You're in brand new territory. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as has come to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. What's the way of escape? We always want it to be that the trial just goes away. We try to run from the trial. Jesus prayed again, Father, if possible, take this cup from me, but if, if not, your will be done and not my own. In the wilderness, the way of escape for Jesus and his temptation all three times was to respond to Satan's deception with the word of God. So there's a way of escape always for us. That is really what biblical counseling is about. You're in a trial. God's Word has the way of escape. How to endure the trial biblically. Paul, in his thorn in the flesh, he prayed three times for God to make the way of escape, to just remove the thorn. God said, no, here's the way of escape, Paul. My grace is sufficient. Paul understood that he struggled with pride and God gave him that thorn in the flesh to mitigate his pride and self-reliance. That's the way of escape. I'm going to lean into this because God is determined, I need this. I've got a pride problem. James goes on to say, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's very flowery language for saying God is not like the double-minded man we just read about a few verses earlier. There is no shifting shadow or variation with Him. He is one. He is whole. He is perfectly self-sustaining. He doesn't learn. He knows everything. He doesn't need your wisdom. His is complete. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Echad, echad, whole, complete. Well, how how ought we to listen to this Echad, this complete God. You shall love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's somebody who's not divided. Love Him whole with all of who you are. Don't bless Him one day and then blame Him for your problems the next. Don't thank Him for all the wonderful, easy things in your life and then be tempted to curse Him when troubles come. He's the Father of lights, the lights being the created stars and planets which move around and and twinkle and change in their dimness and the moon. It goes through its different phases. It's just this picture of God's not like that at all. He's the full moon all the time. Full light. And every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. You say, isn't that redundant? No. The every good thing given refers to the motive of the giving. Everything he gives, he gives with the right motive. Hey, I've gotten good gifts from people that I know there were strings attached. That's not like God. His motive is pure and the gift is pure. So when the gift happens to be a difficult trial, you can be assured, beloved, that the motive of him giving you that trial is pure and the gift itself is pure and good. The trial itself may not look like good, but the motive for giving it, his love for us, and wanting to see us grow in Christ-likeness is good. And because that's what the gift will produce, then the gift itself is good as well. I know that's hard because he gives us gifts that we would wish he attached the gift receipt to. Amen? Amen. I've been through a little in life, and, and I see some of the things you guys have to go through, and your endurance inspires me and encourages me to endure and persevere in my trials. I'm sure harder days are coming for me, and God is getting me there little by little by little to be able to endure those trials. If you're in a really difficult one, you're the head of the class because I'm still getting I'm still getting the easy worksheets. But they don't feel like that when you're in the middle of them. Finally, he says, James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Look how he compares that to the giving birth thing. This brought us forth, that, word, that term in the Greek is like a giving birth. Brought us forth. So how does sin get its birth? Remember, it's desires plus deception gives birth to sin. But in God's economy, His will, His desire, plus the word of truth, gives birth to life, to first fruits of His creation. This is James' way of talking about our salvation and our progress in sanctification. Acknowledging that God's will is perfect and good for us, add that with truth, gives birth to 
first fruits among his creatures. New life. We're new creatures in Christ who can now look at the trials of life the way they ought to be looked at. To bless God in our trials instead of blame him. That is a huge difference between the believer and the unbeliever. In fact, it's so foreign to the unbeliever that when they see this kind of behavior, they're dumbfounded. You hear about this in hospitals as people endure with peace and joy difficult trials. Where did they get that from? That doesn't make any sense. I don't know what to do with that. That doesn't compute. When you turn the other cheek and you bless your enemy, that doesn't make sense to the world. We can do this kind of love because He loved us first on the cross. Blaming God turns to blessing God when we see Him as the provider of every good gift, even the gift of trials in our life, which draw us close to Him. This is the choice we had to make in our justification. And beloved, this is the choice we make every day a thousand times over through all the little trials of life throughout the day. Will I choose to blame God or bless God? The blessed man chooses to bless God. In fact, if you'll stand with me, let's bless him right now by singing the doxology.